Hello and welcome to Plotress. This is Lane. This is Meg. And today we're reviewing The Lady Tempson Air by Harper St. George. This was published in 2022 and is the third in the Gilded Age Eras' series. And full disclosure, we did receive an advanced reader copy from NetGalley. And we have reviewed the first two books in this series. Um, the first was about the two, first two were about the two Crenshaw daughters. And this book is about the Crenshaw son. Correct. Well, let me let me just start off the book jacket because it does talk a lot about the Crenshaw son. Tall, dark, and brooding. To say that, um, tall, dark, and brooding. To say that American Maxwell Crenshaw stood out in the glittering ballrooms of London is an understatement. He vowed never to set foot in England again, but when a summons from his father, along with an ultimatum to secure his legacy, has him crossing the Atlantic for the last time, Reuniting him with the delectable Lady Helena March, he can't deny the temptation she presents or the ideas she inspires. Lady Helena March is flirting with scandal. Instead of spending her time at teas and balls in search of another husband, as is expected of a young widow, Helena pours her energy into the London home for young women. But society gives no quarter to unmarried radicals who associate with illegitimate children and fallen women, and Helena's funding is almost run out. So when the sinfully seductive Crenshaw heir suggests a fake engagement to save them both, him from an unwanted marriage and her from scorn and financial ruin, Helena finds herself too fascinated to refuse the sexy American. As their arrangement of convenience melts, oh, so deliciously into nights of passion, their deception starts to become real. But if Max knew the true reason Helena can never remarry, he wouldn't look at her with such heat in his eyes. Or might the Crenshaw heir be willing to do whatever it takes to win the one woman he's never been able to forget? This jacket is a mess. The first, that first paragraph is... Um, a sentence. <laughs> well, it's two sentences, but the second sentence should be about three. That, it, it's... First of all, it's a mess. Second of all, there's Helena's funding is almost run out. Has very, almost run out. Is very, running out. Like it's I, not colloquial English. Maybe this is how they spoke in Victorian London. Okay. It's a hundred percent not. <laughs> like I honestly, so content is secondary. This jacket is a mess from just like a grammatical following the who was the subject of the sentence. Content wise. I mean, explaining what the story is about, it's not that bad. I think my favorite part is as their arrangement of convenience melts oh so deliciously into nights of passion, their deception starts to become real. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I mean, yes, but also, isn't it, doesn't that mean it is real? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I guess I could be wrong. I don't. It's fine. It's totally fine. Um, so... I will say with the 32 word minimum, I think I play some pronoun games that are a little confusing, but on the whole, I think my summary is better constructed than the jacket. I, I don't disagree with you on that one. So this week, the random number between one and 50 that we generated was 32. So my 32 word summary, the Crenshaws are the worst parents in history. So they're forcing their son to marry or they'll hurt their daughter. 
Luckily, he's already crushing on a woman who needs a man's strength. I like it. I, I don't know if I read yours, like skimmed it, and then subliminally got some of your wording. But anyway, I did. I think I think I did. I think I got, stole a little from you by mistake. Here it is. Max is crushing on Helena, and she's crushing on him back. But she has reasons she won't get married again. Obvious solution for mutual crushes that must remain unrequited. A fake engagement. Ah! <laughs> I, it does crack me up. Like, I love the fake relationship trope. It does crack me up that every time someone enters into a fake relationship, it's because they already have a crush on the other party. Yes. I mean, you would never have a fake relationship with someone you weren't attracted to. No. No, you just wouldn't. Well, because what if you have to make out? I, exactly. Like, that has to be in the back of your head. Like, what if I must make out with this person? I yeah. need to kind of want to. Exactly. Exactly. I agree with you. Um, so this week's Gentleman Jackson is Gentleman Jackson's Guide to Raw Masculinity with a Gentleman's Veneer. Is horses, guys. But they're not shown. You don't actually see him on the horses, but you, I mean, you get to hear about how his thighs are just so strapping, more than other men's. From riding the horses that aren't Obviously. even in London with him. Obviously. I mean, what do you do? Okay. Maybe I'm just prejudiced against America. But when I imagine Gilded Age New York, I do not imagine people riding through Central Park on their horse. I imagine people riding through Hyde Park on their horses. I have no problems imagining Regency or Victorian London with equestrian people. Yeah. I'm probably totally wrong, and it's probably totally fair for him to do that. Yeah, I actually have the same thought. Like, Gilded Age New York, to me, is so industrial. Right, exactly. And I know that London was even smoggier than New York, and so it was, in some ways, even less... like. Rural's the wrong word, but, like, accommodating to equestrian culture. But I totally agree. Like, my first instinct is not horses anywhere in New York City. It's weird. I'm... I, look, I have never lived in New York. I, I know New York mostly from movies. I guess I have seen movies where people are on horses in Central Park. Yeah, I can't. I, the only horses I've ever seen in Central Park are the horse-drawn ones mm. that always have animal rights activists freaking out. Right. But I have no idea what the history is of, like, normal people right. having horses in the city. I agree. But anyway, I, I don't know enough about it. I admit it. I admit it, guys. I don't know enough about Gilded Age New York. I should probably watch that show. We don't um, have that much interest in America. If you haven't I, picked up on that in the course of this podcast. <laughs> I know a lot about America today. And I don't need to know more about America in the past. Let's also be real. Our past is so recent. It's not even that past. Yeah. But I mean, it's the same past as this past. 
but it's got history going back. Like they're just casually like, oh yeah, this house was given to us by King Henry the Eighth. So even though <laughs> the people are like existing concurrently with America, their history is so much older. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. So the tropes, I think we both pointed it out. They have a fake relationship. Yeah. It's amazing. I, I think this is one of my favorite ones, actually. Just because I bought the reason that they both were going to benefit from going into it. They're both adults. Yes. I also loved how thoroughly they thought of the ending it. Yes. Like, it was just so well done. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It was good. Uh, there's parental manipulations to force marriage. On both More- of their sides. More his parents than hers, but on both sides. But you may recall that his parents forcing their children to marry was also trope in the first two books. Mm -hmm. I cannot stress enough, and I will repeat myself on this throughout the episode, I fucking hate the Crenshaw parents. (laughs) Yeah, they're They're the worst. They're terrible. They're terrible. They're really bad. So, trope, it turns out that they're both secretly bidding against each other for the same object. They don't know that the other one is bidding, is the bidder against them. Which, this is something I've seen in actually a lot of romance in my life, but even some non-romance, it's a trope that definitely transcends the genre. Yeah. Um, and it's actually happened once in my real life. Oh, really? Um, one of my cousins for Christmas, this would have been 10, 15 years ago, like, so the internet exists and eBay exists, but right. people aren't like super up on it. They wanted this nostalgia e game thing. And it turned out my mom and one of my aunts were the ones bidding against each other. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and so it became this huge, are you effing? Like they ended up driving the price up like 50 bucks bidding against each other. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's funny. So guys, it happens in real life. Correct. I I didn't even mind the way that went down. No, I didn't either. I because at first I was, I was like, oh god, this is going to be a thing. But I liked how it was handled. Same. There is a secret passage in her house connecting their bedrooms, so they can just circumvent the door knocking and scandal. It's amazing. It's really good. <laughs> it's really good. Really good. I just, I love that it existed and I loved how it was used. They, as the book jacket reveals, they slide into passion, but they have to stop because they might get too attached to each other. Right. And there's specifically the, our one night together was amazing. Therefore, it must never happen again. And that whole conversation literally happens. It was so good. It's so much fun. She's one of the wealthy daughters of the Tan who participate in charity works as sort of their occupation. However, as the book jacket alludes, she takes it a lot further than that. I really liked the way this was handled too, actually, because one of the things, so I think apparently Lane and I are outliers because I think we kind of like reading about widows. Yeah, well, because we don't like reading about people who are infantilized and widows often aren't. So it's not so much that we're like, yay, widows. It's just that like, yay, not a child. 
Yay, her husband died. <laughs> well, and even she says, yay, she has legal autonomy. I right. don't have to read about like the, what will I do if daddy stands in my way? Like she even says, dad, you legally don't have the authority to sign off on my betrothal anymore. I am a widow. And her dad has to be like, oh yeah, right. Well, there's that. But so that's the thing too. We like reading about widows. She does have financial autonomy and yet she does have to take care for her reputation. So again, yes. we also read about widows who are like, yes, I'm a widow. Now I can take a lover. She can't because her charity work is so important to her. Right. So I really liked the way Harper St. George worked with that. So there are several moments where their afterglow is interrupted by a maid. It's not quite coitus interruptus, but it was a really fun recurring theme. It was, it was really fun. It was really fun. It was so I don't, the first two books in the series have not been funny. They haven't been like laugh out loud funny. I laughed out loud reading this book. It was really good. So she is, she's a widow who didn't have children and she is infertile. And we have talked about this at length and we will talk about this more in the content warning section. But just a heads up at this point, it is 100% a trope. And we have what is becoming one of my favorite tropes in romance novels. Him, I don't have a condom. Her, I don't care. <laughs> Do it. Yeah, it's fun. I, I also loved his, I can't pull out with you. I have no <laughs> self-control. I was like, oh my God. Uh, yes. I love this. <laughs> oh my gosh. I did read one recently that was like, he... He knew he should pull up, but he just couldn't. He couldn't resist. Yeah, we've read that one on the show yeah. podcast. Oh, I read another one where it happened. <laughs> just recently. We'll be we will be covering it for the podcast in May. Well, and I know we we've talked about the fact that if birth control is mentioned, it's either because it's clearly a sex ed opportunity or like it's alluding to the fact that it's going to fail. Because aforementioned trope, she is an infertile widow. And it's not a question of her saying, don't use a condom because it doesn't matter. I can't get pregnant anyway. It's just a point to show his consideration and is not foreshadowing of any kind in the plot. Well, she does think about it in her head. Right, but she doesn't say it. No, she doesn't. I don't want to, I'm not going to spoil it, but the, the usual, oh, whoops, not a problem does not happen here, thank God. Yeah. So you said you like this book a lot. Yes. Why is that? I mean, I've got a lot of reasons, but I want to be clear. Like we, in our reviews of the first two books in the series, even when we had positive things to say, they weren't that memorable. Um, right. Or even beyond not memorable. Like they weren't even the best versions of that trope we'd read that week. Sure. This is fantastic. Like I almost forgot it was the same series. I loved this so much. Um, and this is the number one contrast I think is Max as a character. Yeah. He grows so much as a person over the course of this novel and he's already starting from such a great place. Yes. He like, already I, starts like head and shoulders above other romance heroes. And I think it's interesting because in the first two books in this series, the heroines are obviously these American ball busting heroines and the heroes are these traditional stodgy members of the aristocracy. And I don't know 
if it was getting to flip that on its head. But I think she wrote a much more sympathetic hero as an American with these enlightened views. Right. And a much more sympathetic heroine as a woman who, like, had a lot to think about in terms of her role in society. I just... This, the two characters here worked so much better for me. And this is obviously a really tropey book, but I think it rises above the tropes. And we've mm -hmm. been reading a lot of that lately in a way the first two books never did. I, I agree that I really liked this book. I really liked the first one in the series. And I did think it was a good example of the Fortune Hunter book. I will agree with you that the second book was fine. Like, none of the books have been bad. No, no, no. I don't want to say, like, I didn't. But I I was telling Meg, like, when I was reading this book and he was alluding to his sister's, like, circumstances and how he'd met Helena, I was like, it. Which reluctant road trip romance was that one? <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I think Max is a really appealing hero. He, I just wish he'd shave his face. I was picturing him beardless, and every time they mentioned his beard again, I was like, all oh, right. Yeah, I don't know. I, I like facial hair, so I'm fine with it. I think the problem with facial hair in this era is I end up picturing, like, Rockefeller. Yeah. Who's not hot. Well, they, they have to, she's very careful to be like, he has, you know, the closely, closely clipped beard. <laughs> Whereas I'm picturing, like, Rockefeller's weird straight mustache. Right. Like, that era was not good facially. I think I'm supposed to be picturing, like, a modern lumberjack hot. Yes. But instead, I'm picturing, like, absurd 1910s and 20s <laughs> facial hair. Like, the handlebar mustache. Yes, exactly. Like, the swoopy stuff. Like, things that needed wax. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I think it would be kind of hilarious if one of the romance authors really went for it one day. And, like, had the guy with the handlebar mustache and he was the hero. No. Like, I want to read it, but I also think I would think it was silly. So I probably don't actually want to read it. But I don't know. <laughs> I, I say I want to read it, but I also think that I'm being a hypocrite. I'm not interested at all. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about what happens in this book. As the book jacket says, he is summoned to England by his father. So his father's been hanging out in England, make, wheeling and dealing and making deals with nasty guys. And he gets extremely ill. Yes. So the reason he's actually summoned to London this time to start this book is not by his father. It's by his mother and sisters because his father is extremely sick. Yes. But by the time he makes the transatlantic journey, his father is on the bend. But then... Once he's in England, his father thinks, this is great, perfect opportunity for me to manipulate my son. Have I mentioned uh, his parents are just phenomenal people? They're the worst. And so I think it's interesting because he stays in England for a couple of reasons. First, because he's being blackmailed by his father to get married. And the leverage is for his sister. Right. Right. Second is because he's trying to he's trying to foil some of the business deals his father is doing. Yep. Because they're um, exploiting workers in India, basically. 
Well, they're planning to exploit workers in India. They're currently right. exploiting workers more domestically. <laughs> they're currently exploiting workers at home, but they want to exploit workers even more in India. <laughs> yes. And so this is something that belongs both under sort of content warnings, but also under this is why Max is head and shoulders above other romance heroes. Mm-hmm. It, it, it belongs in both places. But basically, he wants to be an ethical CEO, right? He wants to earn a fair salary and he wants to pay fair wages and he wants to make sure that the business continues as a, as an ethical business, basically. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, obviously, you know, I think it's great that we have a business owner who wants to make sure that his employees are being treated fairly. But on the other hand, there's sort of an unquestioned idea that the problem with enterprise and capitalism is corrupt individuals. Right. And that all of the problems of capitalism and the need for unions is inherently dismissed and made insignificant by one ethical person. Right. And that's just not true. Right. And I thought it was also particularly interesting. One of the things discussed from both the perspective of her charity and his business is providing housing and jobs simultaneously to people as like an ethical thing to do. It's like, mm, I mean, a lot of modern conversation is about how unethical it is to tie insurance to employment. And I think that's ratcheted up even more if you're tying housing to employment or vice versa. Like if you lose your job, you lose your home. And they're like, isn't this so fucking ethical? And I'm like, no, 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 it's not. But that's just me. That was me yelling at the book because the book was like, isn't this great? And everyone was like, yes. Or if they said no, they're like, no, because it cuts into our profits too much. But also, doesn't it remind you of our Winterborn Bucks conversation? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They don't actually talk about paying them in Crenshaw pounds. No, just in Crenshaw housing. Yes, Crenshaw housing. So the both Max and Helena are rich. They will have a lot of money. They will have a yes. lot of privilege. They both recognize that they that their wealth gives them privilege, and they both want to use it in ethical ways. And it turns out that the conflict between the two of them is which way they feel is more ethical. <laughs> Right, which way to spend my money and privilege is most ethical and most beneficial to the deserving poor. Right. So on the one hand, we read books about rich people a lot because we read historical romance and we read historical romance set in the aristocracy. So these people are super rich and they're exploiting their workers. And we just kind of don't think about that when we read the books. So I give points to St. George for incorporating the, the fact that they are wealthy and privileged and recognize that there are people who are not wealthy or privileged. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I, I recognize that she's trying to be historically accurate in the way that she's depicting how they're providing for them. Mm-hmm. 
it can be difficult to read from a modern lens. Yeah. And I think the hard part for me is like, you're right. It's not ideal that the majority of historical romance is truly fully escapist fantasy. And you know that the world we are reading about was developed and prospered on the subjugation and mistreatment of a lot of people. But on the other hand, it's not like that's talked about in the books. Right. Whereas here it's talked about. So the fact that in some ways they were falling short is more evident than just in the books where they don't talk about it at all. Right. And I don't mean that necessarily as a criticism, just a fact. Like I usually don't think about the exploitation of the labor class unless it's a plot point in a romance novel when reading a romance novel. Yeah. And here it was like pretty much the plot point. Besides her infertility. Yes. And their parents being the worst. Yeah. They both have just awful parents. My God. (laughs) So, look, if I'm going to read about rich people, I do like the fact that they acknowledge that, you know, they're there but for the grace of God go I. Yeah. So, that is acknowledged in this book, and I did appreciate it. And if I'm going to read about rich people, I appreciate the rich people who think about their wealth a little bit. Even if... In the name of not going too far on the anachronism scale, some of the ideas that are put forth as like, isn't this so forward thinking and great man history of me? Yeah. Instead of like, the whole system is kind of fucked. Right. So. There's more that I want to talk about, but I think we do have to do, we have to have a spoiler tag. Completely agree. I will simply say, so we're moving, I think, into content warnings. I want to talk a little bit about her infertility. Sure. I really appreciated, this is honestly one of the very few romances that I have read where the heroine suffers from infertility and it's not miraculously healed at the end. And it's, it's clearly defining, so defining they put it in the jacket. But it's funny because I found it less defining in the text. Not in their conflict. Like, clearly it was a big part of her feelings toward him. But not to say she'd moved on at all. This is maybe the first character struggling with infertility who I haven't been like, oh, you need therapy, honey. (laughs) Right. Like, I think for better or worse, like, she's she has truly worked through it. And it is not defining her in her every day. The only other book I can think of where infertility is treated similarly is Thief of Shadows. So I think it was that one thing was better done here. I think the way that infertility was handled in this book is exemplary, really well done. It does not close over the fact that it's extremely painful for her. Yes. It does not make it her defining characteristic, although it has defined several of her choices in life. Yep. So I think it's great. Really, really well handled. Yes. And I don't think we need to talk about this after the spoiler tag, so I'll try to say it in a spoiler-free way. Her first marriage, obviously, infertility ended up being a conflict between them prior to her husband's passing. Spoiler alert, she's a widow, so her husband died. (laughs) And... 
the way he reacted to her infertility and both of their thoughts at the time about a woman's role in the home, in society, and in her husband's bed were very difficult to read. I agree. It does not gloss over the fact that, you know, he had expectations and quote-unquote needs and expressed those to her. Mm-hmm. In other words, trigger warning, she, she has experienced sexual assault in her life. Yeah. And I think the only other thing I want to put into offensiveness, I know we've been saying it like flippantly, like this is child abuse. Like yeah. the parents suck so bad. No, they are not small children, but these children are just pawns in their parents' lives. And there are supposed to be these scenes on all sides that redeem them somewhat and make you realize their motivation is love. But it's like, no, that's bullshit. These are bad people. Yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes you don't. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're such hypocrites because on the one hand, we're like, I don't want a one dimensional villain. But on the other hand, we're like, they they can't be redeemed. <laughs> I like one dimensional villains. What the fuck are you talking about? Oh, <laughs> uh, gosh. I don't like the reason being he's crazy. If the reason's just he's evil, I'm fine with that. <laughs> so no one-dimensional mental illness, but, men- but one-dimensional evil is acceptable. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Authors take notes. <laughs> okay. Yay. Sexiness. Uh, this... This book was, I think, the sexiest of the series so far. Yes. Max had some some real, I don't know, some, some, he took control in the bedroom. But skills not in with like, a Z. Yeah, skills with a Z. He took control, but like not in a gross way. No. It was extremely This hot. does not veer into BDSM at all. <laughs> But he is just very authoritative. <laughs> I feel like the way that you pronounce those T's really gets across how Max <laughs> is in the bedroom. Or should I say in the drawing room? On the floor! <laughs> against the wall. To the window! <laughs> to the wall! <laughs> So they have the hots for each other as established in book two. Yep. So we don't have to go through the like, there's obviously a lot of setup here, but then getting to know each other and like getting to thaw around each other, they're already hot for each other from the jump. There was, upon reflection, less like, there's only two really explicit scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's some more making out, but like the book felt sexier than it was. I agree with you. Like, when I realized there had only been two, like, orgasm scenes, I was like, how is that possible? This whole book felt so sexy. Yeah, yeah, it felt very sexy. There was the drawing room scene, and then he goes, there's a house party. We forgot to mention that trope, house party. (gasps) And they waltz. They waltz. But then he gets to go into her room because of the trope secret passage. Mm -hmm. And then he spends all night there. So they do have sex when he first gets in the room. And then also. I'm getting that as one scene though. Oh, I know. But I'm just, I'm just letting everyone know that. There are more than two orgasms. Yes. Correct. There are only two sex scenes. 
And uh, and St. George does that thing where she makes it sexy and she also makes it funny. Yes. Oh my God, the scene with the condoms. So, so funny. Oh my <laughs> gosh. I, I laughed out loud. I laughed so hard. So funny. <laughs> I loved it's like her reaction the next morning when she's like, oh God, people are whispering, did they find it? <laughs> It's really good, you guys. It's really good. It's really funny. And I will say, too, what is there is extremely hot and explicit. And even some of the non-sex scenes, like, they talk about sexually charged. Like, there's a scene of them touring this space that's going to be for her charity where he's like, interesting, we're trying to talk, but all I can picture is her moaning beneath me as I entered her last night. So, like, (laughs) even the scenes that are not even sort of sexy are made sexy by the fact that the two of them could not stop thinking about each other. It's true. It's very true. It's it's, uh, it's very well done in the sex department. I love it when the sex scenes are like fun. Yes, exactly. Like the scene before they go to her bedroom, like she's talking to him and she's like, okay, we have to be discreet about this. So we have to separate right now and like go be normal and then I'll find you tonight. Yeah. Like that's the spoiler free version of this. And he's like, yeah, my valet's going to realize something's not normal when I have a giant erection. (laughs) And she's basically just like, figure it out. <laughs> exactly. She's like, that's your problem to deal with. <laughs> Hope you can get your pants off. <laughs> it was really fun. So much fun. Okay, we are going to have a spoiler tag. So for those of you who want to say goodbye, remember to rate, view, and subscribe before you go. Bye. Okay, now for those go. of you... Now, for those of you who um, want to hear our takes on some of the stuff that definitely veers into spoiler town, stick around. We'll probably have a little bit more conversation. So I really liked the way they handled infertility. I know I already said that, but one of the things where they, that they do is they actually talk about it because Helen is like, this is what ruined my marriage. Before my husband died, of we cancer. were... I didn't kill him before my husband died of cancer we were basically estranged because he couldn't handle the fact that I was infertile yep and she's like I don't think that I could be with you because eventually you're going to resent me for it because he's made it very clear through the entire novel how much he does want children right not knowing she doesn't like he is good with kids he wants kids that that's that comes up and she knows it before she tells him about her circumstances i mean she works a charity with children and he sees her with the children and he's like wow she would be a great mom right things like that which i are not out of place and i think are perfectly appropriate for people to think Mm -hmm. so it wasn't feeling like weird either you know Mm -hmm. but he he does not immediately say oh it's no big deal I'll love you no matter what. He does take a step back and say, this is really important information. And I do have to think about it. Right. Before I propose marriage to you. Sort of. There's a lot of complicating plot factors along with timing where he wants them to kind of continue seeing each other through this period where she assumes it's a death knell. Well, he's like, he's like, I'm not willing... Which I kind of get, because he's like, I'm not willing to break up with you because of this. <laughs> right. 
But I also understand why she's like, um, if you still might break up with me later, I want to break it up. I want to break up with you now. Right. I get it. Like, like he, he doesn't think like this might be a deal breaker. He's not articulating thoughts that fully. He's like, right. this is heartbreaking for you. You're right. I want children, but I don't want to lose you either. This is sort of like a thing I need to process. Yes. Yes. This is not like me saying, I don't want you. This is me saying, damn, I have to repicture my life. Right. And I, I really liked the way they talked it through together and they thought about it when they were apart. Mm-hmm. I, it, it just felt really real. And yeah. it, it just felt, I, I, I just really appreciated the way it was handled because he also didn't say, well, you know, Maybe the doctor can find something. Maybe he can fix you. You know, th- right. that just was never no thing. And then I personally really loved the solution that she comes up. Uh, she doesn't come up with it. His sister comes up with it for her. Right. And the solution is because she loves him. And she's like, even if I take his word for it, that he loves me. There's no guarantee that he's not going to start resenting me for it. Five and years then we're line. stuck together forever in a loveless marriage where we're strangers. Yep. And August says, no, 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 no. You marry him. You become an American. You can get divorced whenever you want. Pretty much. And she thinks about it. And she's like, you know what? Having an out is going to allow me to commit to him. Mm-hmm. And I personally loved it. I thought it was really interesting, right? Because I do think what divorce has done for women's equality cannot be overstated. Mm -hmm. And for women's ability to make choices in their own lives. And so I don't want to have this come off thinking divorce is bad. But part of the reason the thought of living estranged but still committed to each other is so completely abhorrent to her is because of the like inherent obsession with marriage that society, but also romance novels have. Like there is no such thing as a happily ever after that doesn't end in I do. And so the fact that one, that was inherently not challenged And two, the fact that then when she goes and tells him her plan, he's like, oh, you silly woman. Of course, I'm never divorcing you. And Meg's right. Like, it's not like she changes her mind. But there is, when you're in her head and he says that, she's like, oh, thank God, he does want me and we're going to live happily. I just, I think by the nature of what romance novels are and what happily ever after means in a romance novel context, it sort of lessened the significance of how independent this option really made her to me. I mean, yes and no. I'm going to be honest. The fact that it was even mentioned, I feel is almost groundbreaking in historical romance. Well, the only other one we've read where the word divorce was seriously mentioned was the one where he brought divorce papers to her in a giant romantic gesture. Yeah. Which was the best part of that book, in my opinion. I agree. 
I'm not saying I disliked it at all. I totally understood why it was the solution that worked for her. I thought it was groundbreaking. I overall really enjoyed it, but I think it just gave me a lot of, oh shit, my usual vision of happily ever after is really narrow. And this book trying to expand it even a little is making me think about how much bigger that could get. Yeah. Last question. What did you think of the epilogue? Remind me of the epilogue. It's, it's setting up the next book, right? Barely. It's mostly about a forgiving the fucking parents. That must be why I don't remember it very well. Yeah. I, like, I was just very annoyed by it, actually. Like, I'm glad it wasn't about, like, their childless life. Right. But it still ended up being about this, like, importance of family. Would you have liked it? Because here we have a hero who is going to defy his parents by not having an heir, a la Simon Bassett. But he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't have to do anything funky to do it. He, like, he could totally be in and be like, ha, I found the one infertile Earl's daughter. Mm-hmm. And so you thought you were leaving this to your son's son but you're going to have to leave it to one of your daughter's kids. Yep. But he didn't do that, though. No. I just, I thought there was so much more to their relationships and what they'd overcome and, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff with his sisters and the charity that to have the epilogue be, instead of, like, all the children and nieces and nephews playing together, you still sort of get that because you get to hear the names of a sister's babies. Mm-hmm. You get the, them trying to reconcile with their parents. And I was like, no, the first three books, it's been too damaging here. This is not what I want to read about. This is not what Happily Ever After for these people looks like. Yeah. Well, the first book, you didn't feel like the parents were that horrible. Like, you I thought they were bad. ranting about them in the first book. I thought you ranted in the second book about them, but I Both. guess it's, wrong. It's, been getting, it's been getting progressively worse through the series. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, I mean, obviously I didn't think much of the epilogue because I forgot it already. (laughs) And I'm just ready for book number four. Yeah. I mean, I hope it's going to be as good as this one. Same. This is a really excellent read. I highly recommend it. Loved it. Thank you guys so much for listening. Ciao, ciao.